This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Howdyland.com, a Best of the Left activism update, the Tom Hartman program, The Onion Radio News, The David Pakman Show, The Progressive, Counterspin, This Week in Blackness, The Majority Report, and Comedian Lee Camp. And a note for our listeners, if this episode causes you to wish ill on others to make yourself feel better, please adjust your paradigm. Let me run through uh, the Forbes 400 for you guys. Combined net worth in 2012, 400 richest people in the country, $1.7 trillion. But look, we live in economic tough times, so obviously that number must have gone down in the last year as it has for the median American family, right? Yeah, wrong again, Bob. In 2011, it was $1.5 trillion. It has actually gone up significantly. Get, and are you ready for this? When they signed the Forbes 400 in the year 1982, their combined net worth was only $93 billion. Went from $93 billion to $1.7 trillion. Gee, I wonder if the rich are getting richer. If that isn't clear enough for you, last year, the average net worth of the 400 richest Americans was $3.8 billion. This year, it's $4.2 billion. The rich get richer. And how about admission into the Forbes 400? Well, back in 1982, it only took $75 million for you to make the list. Isn't that amazing? If you had $75 million, you're among the 400 richest people in the country in 1982. Now, uh, that's not going to get you into the top 4,000. you crazy. In 2012, in order to make it on the list, you have, you have to be a billionaire. $1.1 billion. Gee, I wonder if the rich got richer. Now, part of the reason for that is because they have manipulated the laws and the tax regulations for sure to be able to keep more of their money to pay less in taxes and so uh, let me give you a sense of where the tax breaks go the top one percent of income earners raked in 23.9 percent of the tax breaks remember how Mitt Romney was talking about oh my god these guys they feel entitled they got all these tax breaks the bottom 47 percent that's the way they don't pay the income all right, let's keep going on who gets the actual tax breaks. Top 10% of income earners raked in 40.3% of the tax breaks. Some quick math for you here. Bottom 60% of income earners raked in just 20.1% of the tax breaks. So you understand that? Remember how Mitt Romney said 47% of the country, they get it easy because they don't have to pay income tax, etc. Because they're getting all the breaks from the government. Turns out, no, the bottom 60% only get 20% of the tax breaks. The rest of it goes to the people that are well off. In fact, as you just saw there, about 64% of the tax breaks goes to the top 10%. So, gee, I wonder how the rich got richer. Now look, there's a lot of great people on that list, and there's good movement on the list from time to time. And so, it, it, they didn't all just get there because of tax breaks, and if anybody got there because of tax breaks is Mitt Romney. As I've explained on the show multiple times, he took advantage of so many tax loopholes, deductions, exemptions, and the way the tax system was structured in the first place, it was part and parcel of how he did business at Bain Capital. But a lot of people who are on the Forbes 400 didn't get there because of that. You got Oprah, you got Bill Gates, you got Warren Buffett. Now they earned it. Now, but even as they say, Warren Buffett says, says, yeah, okay, look, I earned it, I have the money, of course he's happy about it, he's a capitalist, etc. But he says at the same time, why am I paying less income taxes than my secretary? There's no justice in that. So the guys at the very top actually agreed. The problem is, of course, other people in that top ten, including the Koch brothers with a combined net worth of $62 billion. 
The Walton family, the six heirs of Sam Walton, the guy who uh, founded Walmart, they have a combined net worth of $115 billion. They don't agree. They give 100% of their contributions to Republicans. And they spend a tremendous amount of money to make sure that they continue to have every single advantage, whether it's deregulation, whether it's Walmart shifting the cost of their employees who disproportionately are on welfare, food stamps, etc. Why? Because Walmart doesn't pay them, knowing, hey, you know what? I'll have the government pay them. Pays them those low wages. And of course, on top of all that, all the tax breaks that they get. So there's nothing wrong with people being rich. God bless Forbes 400. You know, people want to aspire to that. There's no issue with that whatsoever. But we've got to have some degree of justice in how we do our regulations and our taxes. Because you've got to give everybody the opportunity to get there. The declining American middle class were forced to look on with envy today when the nation's wealthiest 2% emerged briefly from their guarded compounds to parade about in handmade finery and exquisite jewels. Insurance adjuster Bob Lamont, who lost half his retirement savings in the stock market just two years ago, muttered bitterly to himself as he watched a toy poodle sporting a $50,000 tiara do its business on his front lawn. In a year or two, I'll be trapping them for food. Soon the procession of the country's wealthiest individuals came to an end as they boarded a Boeing 957 jumbo jet and flew off to Paris for lunch. Welcome to the Best of the Left Activism Update. My name is Lauren, and I'm the Activism Czar at bestoftheleft.com. Imagine if the U.S. could raise hundreds of billions, not from ordinary people, but from those who can afford it most. Go on, just for a second. What would you do? Stop cuts to our hospitals and schools? Create a new jobs program? Make sure no one has to sleep on the streets? End the AIDS pandemic? Give every child on the planet an education? Start getting serious about tackling climate change? The financial crisis and the recession have left a massive hole in the U.S. public finances. Jobs and the community services we rely on are at risk in the U.S., while many other developed and developing countries face a similar struggle. But there is another way. What started as an idea, a way to get America back on its feet and ensure global leadership, has now grown into a national campaign. It's called the Robin Hood tax. The Robin Hood tax and its supporters believe that banks, hedge funds, and the rest of the financial sector should pay their fair share to clean up the mess they helped create. 
Now, U.S. Representative Keith Ellison, Democrat from Minnesota, is introducing a bill to, to place a tiny tax on the sale of stocks, bonds, and derivatives that has the potential to raise billions in desperately needed revenue while clamping down on the Wall Street casino that continues to threaten our financial stability. We pay taxes on what we buy, and so should they, a tiny tax on Wall Street transactions that could raise hundreds of billions. That money could provide funding for jobs to kickstart the economy and get America back on its feet. It could help save the social safety net here and around the world. And it will come from the fairest taxation of the financial sector. This small tax of less than half of a percent of Wall Street transactions can generate hundreds of billions of dollars each year in the U.S. alone. That's enough to protect American schools, housing, local governments, and hospitals. Even enough to pay for life-saving AIDS medicines. And enough to support people and communities around the world. And deal with the climate challenges we're now facing. This tax won't affect ordinary Americans, their personal savings, or everyday consumer activity, such as ATMs or debit cards. It's easy to enforce and tough to evade. Simply put, this is a tax on Wall Street, who helped create the greatest economic crisis in our nation and globally since the Great Depression. The same people who have returned to record profits and bonuses while ordinary Americans, the 99%, continue to pay the price of their crisis. So it's time for justice for ordinary families and businesses, for Americans faced with a choice between buying food or paying the heating bill. The Robin Hood tax is just. It's not a tax on the people, but a tax for the people. So with your support, we can help pass this bill. Please join the Center for Media and Democracy, PRWatch.org, and RootsAction.org in helping pass the Robin Hood tax. All the information can be found at RobinHoodTax.org so you can get involved and help spread the word. As their website says, taking on the might of Wall Street won't be easy. We don't have millions of dollars, but we have millions of people. This has been a Best of the Left activism update. For more information about the link in this segment, please consult the show notes at bestoftheleft.com. Likewise, if you yourself have an activist call to action you want featured on the show, please contact me directly at lauren at bestoftheleft.com. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men. Feared by the bad, loved by the good. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Robin Hood. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. You know, to understand the plight of the American middle class today, you have to understand that an actual crime has taken place. The middle class isn't dying today because of a random financial crisis in 2007 you know, maybe George Bush had something to do with it, triggering a deep and long-lasting recession like 1928. No, no, no. I mean, all that happened. But the middle class is dying today because of a decades-long, three decades at least, arguably criminal effort to rig the American economy in favor of the corporate elite 
and the very wealthy and transfer massive amounts of money from the vast majority of Americans up to the top 1%. We're now in the final stages of this effort, what I call the cancer stage of capitalism, and more and more Americans are waking up to what's really happening. Progressive Senate candidate in Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, spoke directly to this issue in her DNC speech. Here she is. People feel like the system is rigged against them. And here's the painful part. They're right. The system is rigged. Look around. Oil companies guzzle down billions in profits. Billionaires pay lower tax rates than their secretaries. And Wall Street CEOs, the same ones who wrecked our economy and destroyed millions of jobs, still strut around Congress, no shame, demanding favors, and acting like we should thank them. Does anyone here have a problem with that? Yeah, I do. Warren, Elizabeth Warren is really one smart woman, and like other smart Americans, she's wised up to what's really happening in our nation, which is the outright theft of the wealth of the middle class and the passing of it along to the top one percenters. In a recent article published for Alternet, David DeGraw, another smart American, highlights each incident of theft against the middle class by the corporate elite. There's the Reagan tax cuts and the destruction of labor unions beginning in the 1970s that has fueled an enormous pay gap between CEOs and workers so that 32 years ago when Reagan came into power, CEOs made 25 times more than their average worker. Today, 500 times more than their average worker. Those same policies, 32 years of Reaganomics, have resulted in the top 1% seeing their share of national income triple over the last three decades, while the bottom 90% have seen their share drop by 20%. Years of lobbying and outright bribery have rigged the tax code against working Americans, forcing them to pay a higher tax rate than members of the corporate elite like Mitt Romney and Warren Buffett. And not only that, those higher tax rates paid by working people they don't flow through the coffers of government to be reinvested to help the working class with things like better social services or better education or better infrastructure. Instead, that revenue is going straight to corporate treasuries in the form of bailouts to Wall Street, tax subsidies to the oil industry, and giveaways to the for-profit health insurance cartels. For instance, the Wall Street bailout financed by taxpayers like you and me led to banksters getting paid more than $150 billion in bonuses just in 2009. While that same year, we the taxpayers lost 25% of the value of our 401ks. That same year, the richest 400 Americans, 400 people, increased their wealth by $30 billion, giving them more, more wealth and the bottom 155 million Americans combined, that's about half of America. As DeGraw points out, had our taxpayer money been invested in job creation rather than passed out as Wall Street bailouts, 5 million Americans could have been put back to work earning $30,000 a year each. Our unemployment rate would be like 5% right now, 5%. 
4%. But that didn't happen. Instead, more than $14 trillion was quietly passed out to Wall Street and corporate America. Trillions more went to our for-profit military-industrial complex so they could profit from our never-ending war on terror. And not a single penny was reinvested in better education, better health care, better infrastructure, or job creation for working Americans. And working Americans really needed all that wealth that's been taken from them. Because before Bush, Americans spent 7% of their income on food and energy. Today, it's 20%. Working Americans pay 8% of their income on health care, more than any other nation in the developed world, and yet we get the worst results. Meanwhile, the cost of housing for the middle class has gone up 34%. So when all of these necessities are added together, Americans have to use their credit cards to make ends meet and are forced to go deeper and deeper into debt since our wallets have been picked by the corporate elite. As Elizabeth Warren said, the game is rigged. And if it wasn't rigged, if wages for working people had continued to rise along with productivity like happened during the Truman administration, the Eisenhower administration, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter presidencies, all of them, every single one of those, as productivity went up, wages went up, and then came Reagan, and, and productivity continued to go up, wages flattened out. If the rich still paid their fair share in taxes and the Reagan tax cuts had never happened, and if wealth distribution in America stayed on track with where it was in the Carter 70s, then today... Now listen carefully to this. This is astounding. Then today, the middle class would be thriving. DeGraw argues, had the corporate elite not stolen so much money from us over the last 32 years, right now, the average middle class income would be about $100,000. We'd be able to afford free health care for every American. Every American family would be able to afford a four-bedroom house. We would be able to afford free college for all of our kids and 21st century roads, bridges, public transportation, and Internet infrastructure. We could also afford a 5% income tax rate going moving forward for 99% of all Americans. The potential for all of these things I just mentioned was stolen by the corporate elite with the help of Republicans Ronald Reagan, both George Bushes, and their cronies in Congress. And smart people are waking up to this reality and, stay, and saying enough is enough, which explains why Rick Santorum, what he was talking about last week when he said this about support for the Republican Party. We will never have the media on our side, ever, in this country. We will never have the elite, smart people on our side. We're going to be on your side, Rick. The smart people will never be on your side. They will not vote for you because smart people will not endorse the sort of middle-class destroying policies that useful idiots like you are pushing. The smart people, the Americans who know about this theft, are standing up and speaking out against it. The smart people know how to reverse the damage that's been done. They know that we have to roll back the Reagan tax cuts. We have to strengthen protections for labor unions. Taxpayer money has to be reinvested in the community and not given to transnational corporations to build factories in Vietnam and pay their CEOs billions. we got to figure it out. Ricky, we know what's going on.
A CEO needs a $30 million Aspen home to recharge his batteries. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. CEO Carl Redinger requires a private helicopter trip to his $30 million 800-acre home near Aspen, Colorado, or he simply can't unwind. Redinger says he truly needs the scenic splendor, heated pool, and Italian marble hot tub to clear his head. I had a $10 million home in Maui, but it just wasn't cutting it. My new Aspen place, I can relax. Someday, Redinger hopes to ease the stress of owning a $30 million home in Aspen by buying a tropical island filled with preteen Bangkok sex slaves. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News, online at the From the 60 Minutes interview from 48 hours ago, Mitt Romney said it is fair for him to pay lower taxes than the middle class. Here's the clip of him telling that to Scott Pelley. No tax on their savings. Now, you made on your investments personally about $20 million last year, and you paid 14% in federal taxes. That's the capital gains rate. Is that fair? to the guy who makes $50,000 and paid a higher rate than you did? It is a low rate, and one of the reasons why the capital gains tax rate is lower is because capital has already been taxed once at the corporate <laughs> level, as high as 35%. So you think it is fair? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's the right way to encourage economic growth, uh, to get people to invest, to start businesses. Okay, so as we know, know, this is not the case. This is Mitt Romney nonsense. A couple of things on this. Number one, if you actually look at that 2011 tax return, even to get up to that 14%, Mitt Romney overpaid his taxes. You can bet that he has already filed an amended tax return and he's going to get a lot of that money back because he actually overpaid in order to even get up to that 14%. That's not really being reported very much, Lewis. And I wouldn't expect it to. Right. Absolutely. Well, it seems like it would be good to report that for him. He could say he... He was so patriotic that he decided to pay above and beyond what was required of him. I'm glad Natan said that because he has many times gone on the record and said he pays every dollar that is required of him and not a penny more that we wouldn't want a president to pay more taxes than that which is required. Well, it turns out that Mitt Romney did for political reasons to make his uh, uh, effective tax rate appear higher. Let's put that aside. We know that this lower taxes on the rich stuff uh, does, does, does not spur economic growth. Growth and people investing in businesses is going to be spurred by demand. There's not going to be demand unless the middle class has the money to buy the product or service that you're selling. So that idea goes out the window. So this is, this is really, it's incredible that Mitt Romney is still parroting this stuff. Now, as Paul Krugman wrote, the low rates didn't happen until 2003. In fact, long-term capital gains rates were 30% from 86 to 97 when Clinton cut a deal. This makes it clear that we had great economic growth even with much higher capital gains rates. No big deal. 
Yeah, it's um, but I mean, Mitt Romney has to come up with a way to make it sound like I don't know. Well, I mean, I love how he throws in the the, the corporate tax. Of course, but uh, it's already been like, double taxed. Well, by that logic, everything's been double taxed, right? Right. The money I just spent today on something was already money that I pay taxes on. Was already money that whoever bought a membership, for example, to support the show. That's money they had paid taxes on. I mean, we could work all the way back to when uh, money was first created. It doesn't right. make any sense. The tax on his investments obviously only affects him, and he's talking about uh, a corporate tax. And the other key thing that a lot of people are missing is that we're talking about the taxes on the gains, right? We're talking about taxes on the gains. He's not paying taxes on the initial money, that lump sum. He paid taxes on the money, the lump sum he invested. Presumably, he paid taxes on that. And then he's paying taxes only on the gains. So this idea that if the tax rate goes up and you make you keep less money on your gains would make you not invest, that doesn't make any sense. No. If you've got a million dollars and you're going to make 10% of that, $100,000, if you pay a 15% tax rate, you'll, you'll, you'll have um, the $85,000 left. If you pay a 30% tax on that gain, you'll have $70,000 left. In either case, it's gains. Pure profit. On, it's profit. Why would you... You'd have to be a bad business person to not invest when the marginal return is still greater than zero. I mean, it's basic economics, ladies and gentlemen. Is Mitt Romney uh, just... Uh, is he mean or is he a liar? That's really the question. Or does he truly believe that that's the best way to quote... Uh spur economic growth. Right. Is he really that incompetent? It's one of three, and none of them are good, ladies and gentlemen. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. New stats out from the Census Bureau show just how brutal the economy remains for most Americans. No surprise to you, I'm sure. Median family income fell last year by 1.7%, and it's 8% lower than it was just in 2007. It's now dropped to $50,000 a year. But while most people have seen their wallets shrink, the top 5% of Americans actually gained a decent 4.9% last year, continuing the trend of greater economic inequality that so marks and so mars our society today. The reason the top 5% is doing fine is because the stock market, where they've got a lot of their funds invested, has just about totally recovered from its nosedive of four years ago. But middle-class families don't have a lot of money in the stock market. They depend on their wages, which have been falling. Now, Mitt Romney's claiming that these stats show that Obama's economic policies are failing. But Republicans have been sabotaging his efforts every step of the way. And Romney's prescriptions, like lowering or getting rid of capital gains taxes and estate taxes, would only make incomes even more unequal. 
Meanwhile, we've got 46 million Americans still living in poverty, and neither Romney nor Obama is talking about them, much less throwing them a rope. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. We are young, we are weak, just as blank as we are bleeding. Too far gone, hit our head, we are This isn't a question of whether taxes allows you to redistribute the wealth, as they call it. That's the whole point of taxes. The question is, where do you redistribute it and how much? And where does it go? Well, that's where the Republicans have a completely different answer. For example, they don't want corporations to pay taxes. They want you to pay taxes. Somebody's got to pay the taxes for those wars that they want to start, right? So, who's going to pay it? Well, they certainly don't want it to be corporate America. They'd much rather have it be the average citizen. But don't take my word for it. Take their word for it. Hey, Suze, let's go to clip number one here. Now, this is a compilation of conservatives, Republicans, and some businessmen who uh, think that, oh, my God, it is time to redistribute so that corporations pay less. China, the world's most populous nation, once a bastion of communism. Now it has better incentives for job creation than the U.S. does in terms of taxes. Our corporate rate is 35 percent. The European average is 25. Stupider than Europe. Uh, Europeans, in, in particular, have much lower corporate taxes than the United States. So China's a better example of freeing labor markets from taxation that impedes job creation than the U.S. is these days. The United States today has the second highest tax rate in the world. That is the second highest. The U.S. has one of the most uncompetitive business tax systems in the world. We have about the second highest corporate tax burden on average. We have the second highest. We know that America is very high, among the highest in the world, if not the highest. I would disagree with the idea that we want to have a corporate tax burden at all. What do you think the, the ultimate effective tax rate should be on corporations? Zero. Zero. Yeah, I think the solution is to eliminate corporate taxes altogether. We're not looking for corporations to get off lightly. Uh, we're looking for corporations to be taxed fairly. And fair would be 0% for them and a hell of a lot more for you. By the way, that nonsense talking point is about, oh my God, 35% corporate tax rate. And then once you add local taxes, it's up to 39.1%. Really? Do they pay that? Hell no. Do you know that there are 26 uh, Fortune 500 companies that since 2008, every single year, have either paid zero taxes or gotten a rebate from the American taxpayers? We gave them money instead of them paying their taxes. And that's not all. That whole thing about, oh my God, we're so burdened by taxes. Are you kidding me? Among OECD countries, those are the uh, developed countries, we're fifth from the bottom in the lowest effective tax rate. That's the taxes they actually pay. After they got all their loopholes and deductions and exemptions that they bribed the politicians for, the U.S.'s actual rate that they pay taxes, our corporations, is 13.4%. Fifth from the bottom. You want to know what UK's is? 27.7. More than double our rate. Australia, 
30.5%. So this whole idea that you guys, oh my God, we pay too much, corporations pay too much in taxes, redistribute, redistribute the taxes to somebody else. Bullshit. That's what it is. Because it's, the tax code is a matter of decisions. Everything you do in the tax code is a decision about our priorities as a country. And what the Republicans tell you is, our priorities are lower the rates for multinational corporations and the richest among us. And shift that burden in a hundred different ways to the middle class. Whether it's cutting what they call entitlements, that's Social Security and Medicare, and you're entitled to that, by the way, because you paid into it your whole life. Whether it's cutting uh, you know, food stamps, which Paul Ryan's budget wants to do by about $33 billion over the next 10 years for people who desperately need food. And you heard Mitt Romney in his little spiel to his donors. He said, these people think they're entitled to food. While they, by the way, eat the fanciest food served with people with white gloves on and Boca Raton. And they're like, oh, they think they're entitled to food. I do declare. But it's their priorities. And they don't give a damn about the poor. They don't give a damn about the middle class. That's who they're going to take from. And they want to give to the rich and the corporations. And it's a fact, and you saw it for yourself right there. That's their motivation. Remember what the American dream used to mean? I do. It used to mean working hard, keeping your nose clean, and getting enough of a paycheck so you could raise your family, meet all the essentials you need. You know, we went through this a couple days ago. It's worth repeating. Be able to take a vacation every now and then, afford a quality retirement. If you wanted to be really successful, climb to the highest rungs of the American ladder. It used to mean coming up with an idea and starting a small business where there's a local shoe store, appliance store, travel agency, repair shop. It used to mean hiring local members of your community to build that business and eventually passing that business on to your kids and those employees you know, staying there long enough to get retirement and maybe their kids working for you. Remember Main Streets and cities across America before Reagan? I realize many of you are not old enough to remember. Ask somebody who is. You will be astounded. Or go back and look at some of the old movies, you know, the, uh, Netflix or whatever. You, you, can, you can see these old TV shows from the 60s and 70s. America was completely different. They all look completely different, full of their own unique shops, boutiques, all employing local workers, making good paychecks so they could spend money at other local stores and keep the local economy thriving. That used to be the American dream. And then something happened. That something was Reaganomics. Specifically, changes in our antitrust laws and our tax code that opened the way for corporate predators like Bain Capital. Bain Capital's business model would have been a crime in the 1970s or at any other time in American history, by and large. Reagan legalized it. That gave the way to transnational corporations that devoured local, local shops on Main Street by undercutting them using cheap labor abroad, tax loopholes, massive government subsidies. 
Look around Main Street today. They all look the same. Everywhere you go, Walmart, Best Buys, McDonald's, Olive Garden, Burger King. I mean, you know the list. Those local businesses from yesterday, they're gone. Or occasionally some brands survive, but they're actually secretly owned by PepsiCo. Those good paychecks that recycled wealth through the local economy, they're gone. Everybody's working for burger flipping wages, except a few teachers. And you got the whole Republican Party screaming, oh, look at that. they're making too much money. And then came the leverage buyout artists and the hostile takeover, uh, takeover hustlers, who eventually got so much bad press, LBO and hostile takeovers, that they changed their industry's name. They officially changed their name to private equity or as I refer to it, pirate equity. It was the opening for corporate predators who created a new business model wherein billions were made simply by harvesting local companies, sucking all the wealth out of them, and then discarding their bones or selling them for scrap. Here's how one of those predators explained how it was done back in 1985, right after Ronald Reagan made it legal. Bain Capital is an investment partnership which was formed to invest in startup companies and ongoing companies, then to take an active hand in managing them, and hopefully five to eight years later to harvest them at a significant profit. Sound familiar? That was Mitt Romney, 1985. Harvest them for a significant profit. Yep, he just said that. Harvesting is usually a term reserved for farming, farming when you're you know, ripping the crops out of the ground, removing the grain or fruit of value, and like Bain did with our middle-class workers in factories, throwing everything else away, or burning it in the fields. It's a term used to describe inhumane third-world regimes that harvest human organs. It's a term used to describe the plot lines of sci-fi movies when aliens harvest humans. It's a term Mitt Romney used to describe what his company was created to do to local economies. Romney's not a job creator. By his own, by his own admission, he's a profit harvester. And today, all that money he's made harvesting the money in what were once our local economies is being used to finance his run for the White House to be the harvester-in-chief. I mean, really, that's what it all comes down to. The American dream is just, I mean, it's, it's toast. Step one. We write a check for $10 million, hand the check to a Wall Street bank, and ask them to make us a CDO. Step two. They create the CDO using risky stuff, very risky stuff, extremely risky stuff. Step three, other investors commit hundreds of millions of dollars to the CDO. Step four, we bet against the CDO using a credit default swap. Step five, the housing market crashes, the CDO's value drops to zero, our bet pays off and we make hundreds of millions of dollars and before you can say step six, gonna bet against the American dream. We're gonna be on the winning team. Purchase risky debt on a massive scale. Then place a bet that the debt will fail. Hundreds of millions for Magnetar. The economy collapsing like a dying star. No one will know till it's on NPR. And who cares? It's time to hit the town. This sucker could go down. The housing market's losing steam, and all we gotta do 
American Dream. Members of a group calling itself Poor Americans Against the Destitute brought its message of division and hatred to Washington, D.C. early today. The coalition of recently unemployed non-union workers milled about aimlessly for approximately two hours before thrusting a megaphone into the hands of founder Jerry Barnslater. Yeah, you know, those people who never had the jobs we used to have are a threat to the way of life that we never wanted and, and didn't ask for. Before leaving behind a foamy slick of carbonated drool, the protesters brought their event to a close by taking a collective leak of rage on a popular magnolia tree. Occupy Wall Street was back in the news with protests marking the one-year anniversary of the occupation of New York's Zuccotti Park. And corporate media largely picked up where they left off, diminishing the activists and declaring the movement dead. That's exactly what New York Times columnist Joe Nocera did on September 15th. He did admit the Occupy movement has had some impact. In Nocera's world, we weren't interested in a lot of important issues that Occupy brought forward. We shrugged off as manufacturing jobs disappeared, he wrote. Quote, nor did we care much that Wall Street had developed a mercenary trading culture, close quote. Huh, who's this we exactly? Well, a few days later, the star business reporter at the New York Times, Andrew Ross Sorkin, had a piece headlined, Occupy Wall Street, a frenzy that fizzled. He got right to the point, quote, it will be an asterisk in the history books if it gets a mention at all, close quote. Ross Sorkin ticks off the ways in which Occupy didn't make a difference. There are no new big banking laws and no Wall Street prosecutions. Well, we didn't know that was in Occupy's power to do all of that, nor are we familiar with radical social justice movements that get all of their work done in one whole year. Sorkin even writes, quote, in the fall of 2011, questioning anything about the movement was not too popular. Doing so was an invitation for withering ridicule, close quote. Actually, it was mostly the other way around. Big-time pundits lined up to bash Occupy for being underinformed, drug-addicted, you name it. The idea that only a brave few spoke up and criticized Occupy Wall Street is silly. But it's exactly the attitude you'd expect from someone who's so chummy with Wall Street CEOs.
The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. So uh, this woman goes into a supermarket. She's at Kroger, right? And um, gets her, she's used as public assistance. She has her snap card uh, her, uh, because there's no more stamps anymore. There's the card, right? And do you know, um, for those of you who have used um, uh, f- uh, food stamps in the past, that some things that you can buy and some things you can't. We've discussed this on the show before. And so when she gets up to the register, uh, the cashier says she owes $10 in cash. So the woman is confused. She's like, I know everything in my cart is covered, you know, under food stamps, so can you check again or whatever. Um, the cashier refuses, says she's done things right. They call over the manager. Um, it ends up, you know, she was right. But then the manager says to her, just give it to her. He said, and she's like, well, I told you it was covered by food stamps. The manager says to her, Elon, excuse me for working for a living and not relying on food stamps. I'm, I'm sorry, what? And by the t- and by that time, like you know, a line had built up, you know, behind her, and so there were people in the line and customers sort of watching. And she's like, she just looked and you know realized that all attention was on her after this manager had said this to her and just bust into tears. I can't imagine what you just said actually yeah. happened. You're telling so so this dude just decided to. I'm I'm. I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand this. So this dude just decided that he was going to insult this woman. So she was actually right. She was right. Uh, she it was, was right. it wasn't that she had done anything wrong. She used her card the way it's supposed to be used. Mm-hmm. She points it out because you're trying to take cash because right. the fact is if you're if if you're using this and you're on this program it's 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 implied if you will that you might actually need this help. Mm-hmm. And $10 of your own cash might not work out that way. And right. so you're telling me at that point, he, the manager, her. the mm-hmm. manager of this store, insults this woman. Yes, tells her, "Excuse me for working for a living and not relying on food stamps." I, I can't. I'm gonna flat out say I, I can't even imagine that. Eldred. Okay, like this, this is something. Uh, like when I was younger, I on a uh, my, my family, I had uh, was on well food stamps for like a little while, mm-hmm. and it's like one of those things that you kind of know. You kind of know that when it comes to food stamps, uh, it's not. It's never. It was never a proud moment to be able to go to the store and buy something. And like you, like my mom would send me to the supermarket, uh, like the big R in my neighborhood, mm-hmm. or uh, or something, and I would go in there with food stamps. I was always. I remember trying to use the food stamps on the sly. Like I would try to like slip it under. Like like when I was going to pay, like I'd try to put a bag in front of my hand so that I could put food stamps down. So people behind me wouldn't see it. And the idea that someone would say something like that is so heartless, so inappropriate, so rude, so classist, so 
ignorant that my brain doesn't even accept that statement that you just said, Eljoy. Like, I can't, it hurts my soul that that actually happened. Yeah. Um, and so Kroger then, um, you know, the a larger company or whatever, um, apologized to her because um, she posted a note on um, their Facebook page. So Kroger apologized to her and told her that um, the manager was transferred to another store. Um, but then they offered her a $15 gift card. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, is that oh. as an apology? So you actively insult me. You don't fire the person who overstepped his boundaries by far, and then you give me fifteen dollars, and I'm supposed to be cool. I was like, what, who comes up with random fifteen dollar increments in the first place I, I as a company? The same company that thinks that their employee in the way was right. It's just bad for PR. It just comes off as if they just told, they agreed with the employee. They just can't say it, so they had to. I can't. That imagine. was an, an extra offense to me. Like fifteen dollars, really? I, Eljoy, I, I'm so. But let's let, let's go a little by that. <laughs> further in terms of who this you know who this woman is, and I think this is indicative of the you know we have this view of people that are on public assistance that they're lazy and shiftless, you know like Mitt Romney, that they sit around and they collect benefits from the government. They don't work. Um, they don't contribute to society or any of that thing, right? So she's married. She, uh, her husband ha- has a business. He has a carpentry business, but it ebbs and flows, right, with any um, business. And she herself can't work right now. She had kidney failure in 2008, and so she's rated, waiting on a transplant. Mm-hmm. So she can't work. So she's on uh, Social Security income, you know, like the SSI. I was so on top about. of all of this, these are actually uh, are these these aren't even the people, the quote unquote uh, shiftless folks that are supposedly not working. These mm-hmm. are people who actually do work, do do have jobs. Uh, on top of it, even though, like, by the way, I am not co-signing that uh, ridiculous um, um, uh, notion that just because you're on there, that, uh, uh, that uh, just because you don't, uh, you might not be working at the moment, somehow you're shiftless. But, so, this, and the, and their, and their idea here was to give them $10, $15? That yeah. was the, that was the fix for this. Here's $15, sorry about that. Wow. Eljoy, I can't even tell you my, my current feelings on that. I, 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 yeah. Yeah, that'd be like, and immediately uh, when it, when it, when when I first heard about this, my thought was, can they sue? Can she sue about this? And I understand that that's weird. Yeah. Um And I understand, and, and that we're we're already we're we're way super litigious as a, a society right. in general. But I feel as if there needs to be more than just simply, um, oh, our bad. Here's fifteen bucks. That, you can't do that. That's uh, it's on the company to come down. Like if I ran a store and one of my employees said that, he would be fired immediately. Yeah. Like tell me, just give me your apron, you can go. But like I said, it's different company. It's the only. It's the only way the hammer is going to come down. It has to come down from Kroger Grocery itself. Yeah, it was completely ridiculous. But this, the story goes on and talks a little bit more about, obviously, because the 47% thing is still in the news, right? They ask her about her political views. Um, and, but, you know, she, she talks about, um, you know, that people have the view that people are just lazy. Um, and she says, I've seen some comments from people talking about how they hate standing in line with somebody who's got food stamps because they've got two carts full of food. She's like, did you not realize maybe this person is not able to get to the grocery store but once a month? Mm-hmm. Maybe you have kids. Kids eat a lot of food. Lots of food. 
That's well, why they have express lanes. You want to be in a line with people or a whole bunch of food? I don't, I don't even you understand. Express what, lane. Kind, what kind of what kind of assumption is that? People at the grocery store have varying amounts of groceries. It is a grocery store. <laughs> you were just picking <laughs> on someone on food stamps. That is the point of a grocery store. Anyone can have, buy they can have anywhere from two <laughs> items to forty-seven items. It is a grocery store. To 470 items. Yeah. Like, <laughs> the grocery store. People go to the store to buy groceries. Yeah, I don't understand it. That, 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 that's the worst thing is that they just assign, now they said the people with the most groceries are the people getting the government handouts. That's, that's a wild leap. Okay, yeah, that's great. <laughs> past uh, two days, we have seen massive protests in Spain in front of the, uh, well, throughout, I guess, well, uh, in Spain, we've seen these protests, and it's also sort of like, you know, there's always been this uh, Catalonian separatist uh, movement, is that right? In uh, And it is... It is gaining a little steam uh, because of this. You've got uh, massive protests in Spain um, as the Spanish government is about to impose another round of austerity cuts. And in Greek, in Greece, excuse me, hundreds of thousands of anti-austerity protesters took to the streets yesterday as the uh, country was paralyzed by a general strike. The interesting thing about this general strike. It includes uh, not just uh, public and private sector unions, but also cops, uh, military personnel, people who work within the judicial system, all on the streets. And there's reason to believe this is going to be problematic for the, uh, I guess, the coalition government that sort of coalesced around the idea of, like, we're going to promise no austerity, and then deliver austerity uh, so that we can get a, I guess it's a $31 billion loan. They're going to impose this austerity, and their deficit and debt is going to increase because, of course, it's going to diminish economic growth. It's just going to be inflicting more pain on these people, and they've had enough. So uh, Europe is becoming problematic again. I don't think that it ever ended. It just was quieted for a brief amount of time. Hundreds of thousands of people in Greece marching. History is bound to repeat. A thousand kids trying to sleep. When they grow up, they'll march in the street, they'll march in the street, they'll march in the street. 
Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome guests like this lady. My name is Janine Garofalo. This guy. Hi, I'm John Oliver. Even sometimes this guy. This is Greg Palace, and I've got my zipper caught in moments of clarity. Free at LeeCamp.net, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it. Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook, get it at LeeCamp.net or on most e reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry. This is your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. Life is this minuscule thing. It's this moment, and then it's over. And you don't know over until life is over. That's the real over. That's the big over. The no, no other over compares to that over. I'm just guessing here, of course. I haven't experienced it. But I have tickets to see the play next week. Life is so tiny and tenuous. And do you ever have those moments... In your day-to-day, when you're watching a TV show about a father-son duo who wrestle alligators, or you're listening to a podcast about one family's bizarre experience with their fat kid in a go-kart, and it hits you. What the f***? What the f*** am I doing right now? Why? Why am I listening to this? What am I gaining? Why? Why? Why will, will I be a better person tomorrow because I know about the f- alligator in the baby pool? Will I make different decisions because I know about the eight-year-old tub and chub stuck in the go-kart? No! Nothing will be different if I have this information! Nothing! I don't know what the meaning of life is, but it just ain't this! It ain't this! You know those moments? I do. Some of you probably think those moments are half your day. Now imagine, people living in the Amazon jungle never have those moments. The people fighting in Syria never have those moments. People dealing with warlords in Niger don't have those moments. And if they do, it goes like this. Why? Why am I collecting water? Oh, because I'll die otherwise. That's, that's why. Their actions are for things. They are pretty much always doing things for a reason. That must be wild. This rabid, voracious consumerism society you and I live in does not want you to have that level of awareness. Ideally, you go through your day-to-day truly thinking it's important you kill those zombies in that video game or watch that replay during that basketball game. Truly thinking you need to buy that new bra, the one that's a joint venture between Victoria's Secret and the Army Corps of Engineers. They want us to think that stuff, the non-events, non-moments matter immensely because if we look away from them for just a second, we might notice other things passing by, things that actually matter. And then we might do something important and pivotal with this peculiar and fleeting affair called life. Hey, Jay, it's Jim again in St. Augustine. I'm listening to this uh, teacher's episode. I've disagreed with a lot of your episodes, and that's fine. We have different politics, but this one is awful. I mean, so the, the one the guy was saying uh, that we're, we're trying to send kids to professional schools that are going to turn kids into test takers, that's, that's what we're turning kids into now with the status quo, with teacher dreams, with the way it is. We're turning them into test takers. 
and nothing more. But if we allow more choice in schools, we're opening up performing arts schools, technology schools, vocational schools, um, just a whole myriad of different options, different options where students who are being educated in our system who are special needs, whether physical or mental, uh, they're not getting what they need in our public schools, but this will open up doors for real professionals who know what they're doing to come in and help these children. It's, uh, I think you're really misunderstanding what's going on in our public school system. And you, you know, to put out the information you're putting out, you're really just saying, I'm happy with how our schools are performing. Let's not change it. You need to look at the statistics. It's not working. And if you are progressive, then you should be pushing for progress in our schools. You should be looking for ways for our schools to perform better. I know everybody wants to compare us to Norway or Japan and everything, but uh, there's a difference between American schools and, and these schools in the Florida nation. One, we have diversity. I mean, uh, please look at the school population in Norway and, and tell me uh, what kind of challenges teachers have there. Uh, in America, we educate all students if they are mentally or physically handicapped. So when our scores are down, it's because we don't refuse children in education like they do in many Asian countries because of uh, mental or physical disabilities. On top of that, we have a low quote-unquote literacy rate. Well, the reason we have a low literacy rate is because we educate students no matter what language they take. Go to Denmark, be an English-speaking student, and say you want to go to school in Denmark. It won't happen. You must speak the language before you can go into their school. Um, and here we are, we're trying to make changes, we're trying to adapt to the diversity that is American, trying to do different things, and you want to do the status quo. Um, look at all the schools around the world. Well, I mean, you'd have to research this, because if you're not going to put it in this episode, you're not going to put it in any of them. Um, schools around the world, they have choice. Parents are allowed to take their money out of the school if it's not performing, and, to, and send their child to another school. They have that option. And the public schools perform much better. It's proven. These are statistical facts. It's been proven over and over again, and yet we're still using the same, not lame, but uh, tired out, disproven junk science, terrible stories and facts. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrid uh, what we're doing to our children in this country. And as a teacher who takes this very seriously, uh, out of all the episodes you've done, I find this one probably the most offensive because you're doing nothing to break the cycle. You're saying that the cycle is good. Uh, in fact, we could probably stand to take a step or two back. I hope uh, the next episode you do on education is much better. Get a hold of me on Facebook. I can um, more than willing to help you find the right information. But you just didn't do it on this episode, sir. All right. Have a good day. Bye. Hey, Jay. This is Simon from San Antonio. The War on Drugs episode was very good, but at the end of what I'm mainly focusing on is the discussion and this continued over the past few episodes regarding uh, bad art and ignoring it and blowing people up and whatnot. And your 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 conclusion just to ignore it is just not good. That's just not good enough um, because people are dying and that's not something that should just be ignored. And um, um, in fact, the the left, what we like to do is not to ignore death uh, for pointless death. Uh, such as the war in Iraq, such as what they actually talked about in this very episode uh, with regards to the countless, the tens of thousands of people dying in Mexico as a result of the war on drugs and how it's an epic failure. 
Um, so we can't just ignore this, how religious extremism has manifested itself. And I am not an Islamophobe. I am anti-religion of religious extremism in particular. Of all, I'm an atheist. I think that um, Christian extremists and fundamentalists that kill abortion doctors are just as bad as Islamists. Uh, this isn't something we can ignore, like some preacher on a corner uh, or some uh, w w wearing a sandwich board that says the end is near. That you ignore. Now, if that guy has a bomb strapped to himself and he clears out a, a square full of people, you don't ignore that. We wouldn't ignore it if it was here. Uh, we, we, we can ignore it because we're far away from it. This isn't, um, that's just, that's it. Inadequate. That's an inadequate response. It needs to be dealt with. And we need to deal with religion, and we need to wipe it from the face of the earth so that we can all be free. Luckily, that's not an extreme view. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> I love your show, man. Wouldn't, couldn't, couldn't do without it. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And uh, so the only thing I have to talk about today is the podcast awards, which are upon us again. And so first of all, the reason I like to do these each year is, you know, first of all, it's a little fun, uh, but also it's just a unique way to uh, get the word out about the show and the story i always think of and then and go back to is that the guy who helped build three different versions of the website that currently supports this show actually originally found the show because it was nominated for a podcast award and so, you know, for that reason, above all others, I, I feel like it's worth it to go through the effort, uh, at least get nominated and go through the voting process, you know, because you never know who's going to find the show and, and what good could come of that. So right now, the nomination process is open. It's incredibly easy. It only takes a few seconds. and You only have to do it once. Uh, in fact, you only can do it once. You can only uh, submit the no nomination page at podcastawards.com once. So uh, this year, I would love to have the show nominated for two different categories. One is the main sort of top banner category for the best produced overall. And then in, uh, in the lower level category, uh, of course, news and politics. So you can actually nominate the show twice, once for each of those. And then while you're there, please feel free uh, to fill out any other categories you would like to do. And uh, once you submit the nominations once, that's it for the year. And that's all it takes. And uh, then if things go well, then I'll let you know when voting starts in, uh, you know, probably several weeks from now. So thanks in advance for your support on that. You'll be hearing more about it as the weeks go on. And that's going to do it for today. So thanks to everyone for listening, especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is how the show actually survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right.